Amen. Oh, some free galaxy. It's tempting. Maybe afterwards. Uh, it's great to see you. Hope you're having a good morning. And a uh, real welcome to you if you are a visitor here. We love having guests, so thank you so much for coming to be part of our family here today. I hope you're not finding us too weird, too loud. Maybe you are. Thanks for coming. We really appreciate having you here. And uh, I don't know if anyone else gets the, uh, the autumn blues. I really get the autumn blues. I mean, this, this week it happened, didn't it? There was that crunching transition from 30-degree heat into 12-degree coldness. I got out of the winter jacket and everything. And uh, if you talk to my wife, she'll say that I am much more miserable when autumn arrives. So pray for her, particularly, as she tries to help me. Um, and uh, also, I don't know what kind of a, a week you've had, but I have spent a lot of my week speaking. I feel like I've talked a lot this week. Um, so this is my, my eighth sermon in eight days. So I am... I am <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That sounded like a sympathy vote. Um, so I'm slightly sick of the sound of my own voice. Um, but uh, it's funny this week, I made a discovery of an old cassette tape of one of my first ever preachers when I was 19 years old. Anyone remember cassette tapes? Yeah. Uh, do you remember the thing you used to have to do with a biro where you used to kind of, the thing, yeah. If you don't understand that, ask someone next to you. But anyway, I found an old cassette tape of one of my first ever preachers, and I was living in America at the time. And so I just, I listened. It was kind of, it was, I don't know why I did it, because it was like a small form of torture. But uh, I, I listened to a little bit of myself. The first thing I noticed was I sounded far too young to be preaching. I, I sounded like I was about seven years old. But then I, I remembered the message. I preached this message about the fire of God coming on the church. And it was in this, uh, this church building in Missouri, in Midwest America. And I remember preaching from that passage where Elijah calls down fire from heaven. And it was all about fire. So there's lots of imagery about flames, fire, heat, God coming. Anyway, two weeks later, that church building burnt to a crisp. <laughs> I kid you not. Literally, it totally burnt down. There was a fire in it, and they had to completely rebuild it. I've never preached from that same passage ever since, <laughs> just out of fear. So be careful what you preach on. Anyway, so wave at me if you did not hear last week's message. If you weren't here last Sunday, a whole bunch of you, where were you? I'm joking. We missed you. It's good to have you here. Last week, I began a message called Beyond Restoration and Into Reformation. And so I'm going to carry on kind of part two of that message this morning, but I'll kind of bring you up to speed for those of you that missed last week, and this will be a, a little bit of a recap for others of you. And I started with this statement that each generation of Christians needs to ask this question, God, what are you doing? And how can I do that with you? Each generation has a responsibility to ask that question because what God is doing in our time, in our generation, is perhaps different than what he was doing in a different generation. And what's so important is that we adjust our priorities, our mindsets, our value systems according to what God is doing because being a Christian is signing up to do what God is doing. <laughs> okay, we, we sign up to follow. We're followers of Christ. That's what a Christian is, someone who's following after Jesus. God, what are you doing and how can I do that 
with you. And Jesus likened that question to pouring new wine into new wineskins. He said, if you're going to receive the new wine that God is pouring out, you need to create a wineskin, a vessel that's suitable. Here's what he said in Mark chapter 2. He said, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. <laughs> Rather, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And in Jesus' day, a wineskin basically was a, a flexible leather bag. Okay, Think of a flexible leather bag, that's a wineskin. And a wineskin, a new wineskin, was designed so that as the new wine was poured into it and started to ferment and bubble and grow, the wineskin could grow with it. So the wineskin would stretch and adapt and be flexible to the wine that it was containing. But what happened if you pour new wine into an old wineskin that is already stretched to capacity, the wine will burst through the wineskin and you'll lose both the wineskin and the wine. And Jesus is saying, listen, We've got to ask this question, God, what are you doing? And build accordingly, otherwise you can lose what God is wanting to do. Because he's pouring new wine into a new wineskin. Therefore, we need to adapt a value system that is appropriate to what God is doing in our generation. And I suggested last week that the wine that God is pouring out is not just the wine of restoring the church. How many of you love the church? I love the church. I'm so thankful for the church. I'm so thankful for what God is doing in the church. He's restoring his people to be who she was always called to be. And God is still about that agenda. But actually in these days, I believe what he's pouring out is a reformation wine. It's a wine for the healing of the nations. It's a wine for the restoration of godly values in society. It's a wine that, that actually everyone in our society should feel the benefit of a different value system, a heavenly value system that is good news for every man, boy, woman and child on this planet. God is pouring out reformation wine which means that our mindset needs to shift from just a church mindset to a reformation mindset. Because this is the new wine that he is pouring out. We need to think differently, therefore. And so last week, we looked at two transitions that need to happen in our wineskin, in our value systems, our, our priorities. And the first was, God is moving us from servitude to sonship. Servitude to sonship. Now, in the kingdom of God, both serving and sonship are both part of the kingdom. In fact, Jesus said, if leadership in the kingdom of God looks like being a servant, you, you, you want to be a great leader? Jesus said, here's what a kingdom leader looks like. Lay your life down for other people. Serve. Get low. Be humble. Seek to be someone who lifts other people up. Get, get your hands dirty where people are and empower them to be all that God can be. Servant leadership is what happens in the kingdom. But actually what happens when you serve, divorced from your understanding of your sonship, your serving can easily become servitude. Which means we start to work and perform for something that God has already given us for free. So many of us live performing, working hard for the approval of other people and sometimes the approval of God when actually you are already approved by God. Stop working 
for what is already yours in Christ. You didn't get into the kingdom by your good works. You got into the kingdom by an outrageous act of violent grace from God. You were saved by grace alone. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't work it. And there's nothing that you can do to earn it more. It's yours as a gift through faith in Christ. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And the same gospel that got you into the kingdom should sustain your kingdom life forevermore. (laughs) I'm living by grace. I'm not just saved by grace. I'm living by grace every day. I'm living in grace. I'm living in the reality of I'm approved by God just because he is good and kind and lovely and wonderful to me. I'm saved by faith alone through grace. And we've got to start thinking like sons and daughters if we're going to reform a society because free people, free people. That's how it works. When you live in the reality that I am free as a gift That means you know what you've got to give away. You know what it is you carry. I have freedom in my blood and I can give that away to other people. It makes reformation possible. The second thing we looked at last week was that God is moving us also from a mentality of human effort to God dependence. If we're going to see reformation in a massive way, it's going to take great dependence on God above the skills that we ourselves can bring to the table. How many of you know when you turn on the news, there is something in you that says, I cannot fix this through my own talent alone. (laughs) I have a ceiling and it goes so far. God, you are going to have to show up if we're going to see a nation transformed. We've got to rely on God himself and get back to the place of hunger and encounter with the Spirit. And it was Paul Manwaring who said, the very best wineskin makers are those who regularly taste the wine so that they remember what they're building for. Which means that if you are a leader or a a manager or or you you are in some way creating an environment in which you want to see the kingdom come, you've got to be enjoying the gods that you're recommending to other people. Have you ever got to that point where you're, you're kind of living life, trying to be a good witness, but actually you realize something's grown cold in my own heart. I'm doing this out of duty rather than delight. God wants us to be a people who live in a place where we're enjoying the gods that we're asking other people to come and meet. You know, when you invite people next Sunday to hear Andy Kind, invite them out of this sense of delight and glory in God. I want you to come and meet the God who changed my life. <laughs> so important that we get back to the place of encounter because it's the source of fruitfulness. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, but a caveat before this story. I personally don't actually like drinking language when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit because I think often it portrays Holy Spirit as a substance rather than a person. Theologically, Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a substance or a force. He's a person of God. And so sometimes when we use kind of drinking language, it can create a wrong impression of who Holy Spirit actually is. That's the caveat. Now let me tell you a story. I remember when I went with my family to to Bethel way back in 2009, and we went to this training session on how to do a great treasure hunt, which for those who've never done a treasure hunt, is basically going out onto the streets, asking God for some prophetic clues and seeing who he leads you to, to speak about Jesus and share his love. 
And so we went to this training session on how to do a great treasure hunt, you know, prophetic evangelism. I was ready. I had my notebook. I was ready for some great tips and training. And so the, the couple who were leading the training session, they got up. They, well, they staggered up, actually, onto the stage. And this is what they said. The key to doing a great treasure hunt is firstly to get really drunk, secondly to stay drunk, and thirdly to get someone else drunk. <laughs> and then laughed. And that was all the training they did. Now, of course, for those, those who maybe think, well, what on earth were they talking about? They're talking about, listen, get more of God, <laughs> stay in more of God, and then give more of God away to other people. That is the key to fruitfulness. That is the key to a great treasure hunt. And we had a great treasure hunt after that. But listen, we've got to get back to the place of encounter, of receiving from God and saying, God, I'm hungry for more of the Spirit. Human effort alone is not enough. We've got to get more oil so we can give it away. So that's where we got to last Sunday. So let's carry on. Here's a third transition in our wineskin. And it's from a gathering mentality to an apostolic mentality. A gathering mentality to an apostolic mentality. And in the New Testament, the word apostle literally means sent one. Someone who was sent by God. Most famous apostle in the New Testament is Apostle Paul. He was called by God as a sent one. And what apostles do is they are sent by God with a particular mandate and they create an environment in which we realize we are all sent as well. That's what apostles do. They are sent by God, but they also create a culture in which we realize we are sent by God as well. That's what an apostolic culture looks like. And an apostolic culture should transform the way that we think and all our gifts operate together. It should make us realize that actually who I am is under this amazing mandate from God to go into all the world and make disciples of nations. I'm just one example of that is with pastoral ministry. I think for many years across many churches, we've had a a false view of what pastoral ministry actually is. We've had this kind of false view sometimes that pastoral ministry is tea and sympathy. That is not biblical pastoring. And it's actually not the pastoring that we do in this church. Pastoral ministry is much more about healing and deployment. That's what pastoral ministry looks like under an apostolic umbrella. Healing and deployment. We are loving people back to life so they can be all that they can be in God. That's biblical pastoral ministry that happens when you're in an apostolic environment. We're loving people back to life. If you are here as a pastor, thank God for you. And I love, I love a bit of tea and sympathy sometimes, but I am so grateful for the pastors in this church who actually their mandate is healing and deployment. You get to love me back to life. And I'm so grateful for the pastors in this church who've done that. And there are a couple of elements to this apostolic mandate instead of a gathering. Number one, our focus is moving from the meeting to the mission. From the meeting to the mission you know, our great preoccupation used to be, how many people can we gather into a church on a Sunday morning? That is an old wineskin mentality. Now, I believe in big church, and we are going to need a bigger building before too long. So start praying for that, please. 
But actually, our mentality is not, it's not bums on seats. It's who has God called you to be in the sphere of influence where you are? How can you be on God's mission every day in your sphere of influence? Do you know, I, I, I have the, the, the privilege and occasionally the pain of going to pastor's gatherings and church leader gatherings where we gather to pray together and talk with one another. Mostly, I love that. But often in the, in the kind of former days, you'd go to those kind of settings and I could guarantee the conversation that you would have with other pastors in the room. And it would go something like this. Oh, hi, Phil. How are you doing? It's great to see you again. Oh, yeah, hi. It's great to see you again as well. So, how's things going in your church? How many are you gathering at the moment? I kid you not. That was always question number two. How many people are you gathering at the moment? What is underneath that question? Underneath that question is this thought. My significance is in statistics. If there are more people going to your church, suddenly I feel threatened. If there are less people going to your church, suddenly I feel pretty good. (laughs) Either way, whether you're tempted into pride or insecurity, they're part of the same coin. (laughs) And both stink. And it's an old mentality. Our significance is not in statistics. It's not. And a new Reformation mindset is less about the meeting and more about the mission. We gather to scatter. (laughs) The reason that this matters is for the holy moment that will happen when we finish meeting. (laughs) We gather to scatter. One of the things I love last year is that we sent over 10% of our church in some kind of team or mission somewhere or other to serve other churches or communities or nations. And I love that. I love seeing what happens when people get hold of this mentality. I am made not just to gather, but to scatter and to bless people with what I have from God. A great example of that was uh, I took a small team from here to Australia this year. And uh, Catherine, who's been painting this morning, came with me as part of the team. And she's an incredibly gifted artist. And before she went, she felt God speaking to her about painting three bits of artwork that she would then give away to people in Australia and New Zealand. And she painted this one beautiful, beautiful painting. And it was of this beautiful Australian-looking beach. You know, beautiful golden sands. Oh, beautiful sunrise. Uh, It was just, it was really beautiful. And then she felt God speaking to her about, (coughs) about hope rising again in someone's life. And she got this scripture uh, that says, As surely as the sun rises, so the Lord will rise upon you. And it was this beautiful prophetic word about God restoring hope and coming to mend things that had been lost. And then she was just waiting for God to speak about who to give this to. So we flew over to Australia. Halfway through the Australian bit of the trip, she says, Phil, I think I know who I'm meant to give this to. And so she gave it to this particular family. Now, I was having dinner with this family when they opened her painting. And they opened up this painting, and the wife of the family, her mouth dropped open. She said, that's my beach. She said, that's my beach. I pray on that beach every single morning. How did she know? I'm like, well, she didn't. She painted it before she got here. (laughs) She's like, that's amazing. And then she turned it over and looked at the prophetic word on the back, and it was all about God restoring hope. And then this verse, as surely as the Lord rises, so the Lord will rise upon you. Again, her mouth dropped open. She's like... 
That is the one verse I've been clinging on to these past few months. She said, we as a family have been through the most horrendous time these last few months, the worst times I've ever known. And that is the one promise God keeps speaking to me. It's the promise I pray on that very beach every single morning. Isn't that amazing? I love that. And... In an apostolic environment, we realize that God has gifted me so that I can scatter and bless other people. I took another team to Zimbabwe, and again, it was great just having some young guys uh, with me as we went into the townships and, and one of the villages. And we had this kind of hour where every single person we prayed for was healed. I mean, that's never happened to me before, but every single person. Two of them we just led to Christ. It was like effortless. Two of them had had dreams the night before that we were going to arrive the next morning. As we were walking towards them, they said, oh, it's you. I saw you in my dream last night. <laughs> Amazing. That happens in an apostolic environment. We are sent ones from God. It's also why we run missional communities, like Simon was saying uh, in the middle section there. Sign up to be part of a life group or a missional community because in that way we get to scatter more mission. If it all relies on this, then we are capping our influence, which is why we have groups, is why we're in community, so we can do mission together. You know, here are just a few of the things happening in some of our groups. We've got a curry group. And how good is that? We've got a group, their mission is to eat curry to the glory of Jesus. I could do that. I could definitely do that. Do you know? Yeah, you can join. 70% of the men who go to the curry group are not part of this church. But they're part of our missional community. You know, our rough terrain group. So they went to a global gathering of witches in London and had an amazing opportunity to prophesy and share Jesus through loving people. Scattering mission. Our Ignite group that runs our Alpha course every, every term, they realized that 60% of those on the Ignite team who are running Alpha had also come to faith through Alpha. Scattering mission. Another lady and another one of our groups said her husband had not been coming to church and was very angry, but we prayed as a group. Now he's come back to church and relationships are being restored. That's what happens in an apostolic wineskin. It's not just about gathering. It's about scattering. It's about mission. And another part of this is also is God taking us out of a parochial mindset into a God's kingdom breaking into every area of society mindset. I couldn't think of anything shorter. <laughs> God's interested in his glory filling the whole earth, not just your Bible study. Do you know the holiest place in the week is not necessarily your Bible study? God loves it when you gather to study the Bible, but He also loves it when you go to work. Do you know when you step out that door tomorrow, He celebrates the fact that you are going into your workplace because that was no happy accident. You're placed there by Father God, you're sent as one of His ambassadors to bring His rule and reign into that environment. And again, so often we have forgotten the mission of the church. We've focused so much on the meeting of the church, we've forgotten about the mission of the church. Do you know one of the holiest moments that's going to happen this morning is at one o'clock when we finish meeting and we leave. 
I want you to say to yourself, when you leave this building, this is a holy moment. Because let me tell you, vision is not vision until someone actually goes and does something about it. What I'm talking about here this morning counts really for nothing unless we, as a community, go and do something about it. Vision starts when you leave that door. Kingdom influence starts when you leave this place. Because you don't go to church, you are the church. Do you know there's that old kind of nursery rhyme, you know, that whole thing of, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, here are all the people. Anyone remember that? I hate that thing. I hate it. It's wrong. And so when our kids were little, we changed it, and it doesn't rhyme as well, but it was this. Here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open the door, and there's the church. (laughs) It doesn't rhyme very well, but it's more theologically accurate. Because people, we are the church. You don't go to church. This building is not the church. When you, when you come on a Sunday morning, please don't say, come on, kids, let's go to church. Do not say that. That is wrong. Say, come on, let's go and gather with the church. We happen to meet in a building. <laughs> this building isn't sacred. You are sacred. <laughs> and the gospel that we carry is God is interested in all of creation. In all of creation. And the, the gospel, which simply means good news, that Jesus preached was not simply believe in me and I'll beam you up to heaven and you can escape this nasty old world. That was not Jesus' good news. Do you know, so often we've turned the good news into good advice. <laughs> good advice is do X, Y, or Z. And you'll get X, Y, or Z. That's not the gospel. The gospel is an announcement of something that has taken place that is so revolutionary that by believing in it, you have to live differently. That's the gospel. It's an announcement that in Christ, in his death and his resurrection, God has come back to the planet. And he has done everything necessary to restore all things, which means he is interested in arts, he's interested in education, he's interested in government, he's interested in politics, he's interested in your community, he's interested in neighborhoods, he's interested in social care, he's interested in justice, he's interested in poetry, he's, who knew? He's interested in music, he's interested in culture, he's interested in these things because it all belongs to God. And the gospel is this, in Christ, the king has come back. The king has come back. And you now are his ambassadors to bring his rule and his reign into your corner of this planet. This is the new wineskin. It's not parochial and small. It's global. It's cosmic. Tom Wright says this, When we say Jesus died for our sins within a message about how to escape this nasty old world and go to heaven, it means one thing. But when we say Jesus died for our sins within a message about God the creator rescuing his creation from corruption, decay and death and rescuing us to be a part of that, it means something significantly different. So instead of suggesting that we should escape the earth and go to heaven, Jesus' good news was about heaven coming to earth. Which means that if you are a dentist, do root canals to the glory of God. Because that is a holy thing. 
If you are a teacher, teach maths to the glory of God because that is a holy thing. If you are a gardener, get rid of weeds to the glory of God because that, we know, that is a holy thing. (laughs) Don't minimize what you're doing. Don't have a secular, sacred mindset. You are a Christian, which means that all you do is called to be sacred under God. You're in society as salt and light, as leaven, like yeast in a dough. And slowly what yeast does is it multiplies and it multiplies and it grows and eventually it fills the whole batch. (laughs) This is part of the new mindset. Next, God is transitioning us from thinking similarly from just big church to big people. Bill Johnson says, I never aim to build a big church, but to build some big people. Now, I do care about building big church. I do care about building a church where thousands and thousands can gather and invite people to know Jesus. I do care about that. But how about we built the kind of church where every individual could become exactly who they were called to be in God? How about we built the kind of church where it wasn't really about numbers, but it was about individual people called by God together to be all they can be in God? How about if big people didn't need to leave the church to become great? Sadly, I think through the years, people who've had big aspirations in God have ended up having to leave the church because the church capped their potential. That is not how the church was meant to be. The church was meant to be the most empowering organism on the planet, empowering people into life. So I remember when I was little, I don't know if you remember the things that you wanted to do when you grew up. Here was, here was my list, my eclectic list of things that I wanted to be when I grew up. A famous sportsman, a famous snooker player, these are real, a famous sports physiotherapist, a famous cricketer. I mean, the things changed through the years. You can see there was a theme. I wanted to be in sports in some way. But the common denominator in all those things growing up is that I wanted to be famous. <laughs> I wanted to be great. And here's the thing. Children are born with an innate sense of I want to do something great with my life. And it's only religion that has to teach us out of that mindset. Religion teaches us that to beat yourself up is a godly virtue. But you know, just as when you were a child, you had a desire for greatness, to do something that mattered, you're meant to live with that same mindset for the rest of your life. Jesus said, if you're going to see the kingdom, you've got to become like a little child again. You've got to think like a child. Religion so often beats the greatness out of us. But how about we created a culture where we truly began to believe I was great and I was born to change the world? How about you actually started to believe that? God has God placed significance and value on me. I was born to change the world and I am ready to rumble. I am ready to kick butt in my particular area of influence because that's who God's made me to be. Scripture says this, 2 
Peter 1.4, you are partakers of the divine nature. Ephesians 3.19, you have been filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Ephesians 2.6, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is, this is what God sees when he looks at you. You are a partaker of the divine nature. Matt and Andy Fordham, partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Matt and Karen Buttery, oh, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Wow. How about you start to live life from that perspective? God has done something in me that's changed who I am. Nowhere in scripture are you allowed to call yourself worthless and for it to be a virtue. Because ultimately, you cannot hate yourself without hating God. Ephesians says that you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Other translations translate that as you are God's masterpiece. How many of you know when you start taking one of God's masterpieces and start pointing out all the flaws, ultimately it doesn't say something about you, it says something about the artist. You cannot think a thought about yourself that is degrading without ultimately reflecting something about the God who made you. It's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. When you diminish yourself, you end up diminishing him. And so I want to suggest to you, we need to kill off the old false gospel of false humility and embrace who God's made us to be and get ready to rumble. Next, next transition, God is moving us from self-reliance to prayerful trust. We are right in the middle of a prayer awakening as a church. I just want to encourage you to keep jumping on, on board that train. There is a prayer awakening. God is bringing us into a new season of prayerful trust. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who said this, I have so much business to do every single day, I cannot get by with less than two hours of daily prayer. Now, in my legalistic days, I used to listen to that quote and think, rats, I'm not putting in enough hours. The point of that quote is this. He understood much activity doesn't necessarily equal much fruitfulness. We can be busy but not necessarily fruitful unless it's connected to Jesus. I have so much business. I better make it fruitful business by praying about it, by seeking Jesus about it, by making sure that he is in it, by making sure it's got his hand of blessing upon it. The new wineskin is prayerful dependence. Because reformation cannot happen without prayer. It just cannot. God will not entrust a reformation to people who believe that they can do it themselves. Have you noticed how we pray really well in a crisis? In a crisis, when you call a church prayer meeting, everybody comes. Do you know why? Because we realize we can't change it ourselves. Personally, if you notice you pray really well when the chips are down. And you need someone to intervene. I do. I tell you, my prayer life's great when I'm in a crisis. <laughs> do you need him just as much when you're not in crisis? What's happening when you choose not to pray when everything's rosy and going really well? What's happening is that you're buying the lie, I can do this on my own, and I don't need him. 
And self-reliance will never bring reformation. Because what we need to see happen is far beyond our own resources. Prayer is so often a last resort for those who've run out of options. Samuel Chadwick said this, prayer is a proof of sonship. It's the privilege of sons. It's the proof of sonship. It's the privilege of sons. Uh, I was just reading again about Bill Hybels, who's a leader in America. He leads a a massive church of 26,000 people in Chicago, Illinois. Imagine that being your local church. Oh, how many, how many are you gathering, brother? Oh, 26,000. Okay, fine. I'm really glad I asked. 26,000. <laughs> and uh, Bill wrote this book called Too Busy Not to Pray. And he says there came to a point in his church's life where 100 to 300 people were coming to Christ every single week. And the whole thing was just going so quickly, he couldn't, his little legs couldn't keep up. And he said, I realized I had a decision to make. I'm either going to pray more or I'm going to pray less in this season. He said, but I made a decision. I'm going to pray more. Even though there is more to do than ever before in my life, I am busier than I have ever been. There is more pressure on me than there has ever been. I'm going to make a decision to pray more. Because actually what that does, it says, God, I cannot do this without you. I need you. And that decision of Bill's turned what was a very fruitful church into an incredibly fruitful church. They have just, for example, they have just built a 7,000-seat auditorium where they meet. They have multiple services every single Sunday morning. It costs $73 million to build. Wow, $73 million. Each year, they train 80,000 church leaders from around the nations. 80,000. When I went there in 2004, um, someone told me they had 11,000 people volunteering on the social action project. Just imagine what would happen to our project. 11,000 people were volunteering on it. Just imagine 11,000 people trying to meet the needs of the homeless in our community. That's what was happening in his church. Why? Because he made a decision to pray when he was busier than ever. If you come to me and say, I'm too busy to pray, I'm sorry, that does not wash. Holy Spirit will always show you a way to pray in every season of life that you're in. So ask him, ask him for wisdom. And then last of all, God is moving us from a denominational mindset into the mindset of family. So I believe that reformation is gonna happen in our nation because God puts family on display. God is a God of family. His, his government is a relational government. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal communion of the Godhead. That is the way God has existed for millennia, 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 way back into eternity past. God has always existed in community and family. His model for reformation is community and family. Not tribalism, not denominationalism. Do you know the word denomination means divided nation? That's what denomination means. I would suggest to you that that is not the way that God is going to reform our nation. It's through denominational thinking, tribal thinking. Can I ask you to pray for other churches in our town? Pray for believers. Pray for others to prosper. When you see other people doing great work for Christ, rejoice in it like you've done it yourself. Have a generous-hearted spirit. Think the best of other Christian believers. Refuse to grumble about them. Choose to embrace them as your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's model family to the world in which we're in. Let's not model tribalism. Let's not model superiority. Let's not model elitism. Let's model togetherness. That's the model of reformation that we need to have in our heads. 
Let's drive the spirit of competition and jealousy out of the church. Let's be a people of radical generosity. Amen.